One thing you very quickly realise spending time in Midlothian and the Scottish borders is that the past can very easily be brought to life. The history is so deeply rooted and so violent at times and you don't need to go too far back in time to start uncovering these fantastic stories of border reavers and Romans and Vikings and all the people who have inhabited this area in the past and it really is brimming full of history. So welcome to this first ever Scotland Starts Here podcast. I'm Dave Howard. Over four episodes, I've got the incredible job of exploring Midlothian and the Scottish borders to share with you everything I find out about what the area has to offer visitors. As they say in the borders, it's better felt than tell. Better felt than telt. Yeah. Better felt than, than told. Yes, right? exactly. In upcoming editions, we'll be in the great outdoors, getting adrenaline pumping, getting wet and muddy, and finding various ways to get closer to nature on both land and sea. It's beautiful. It's just a green, grassy path all the way down. Is that a seal there? We're just going past three adult seals? Uh, Grey seals, yeah. We'll explore this area's unique place at the centre of high fashion as one of the world's great centres of textiles and weaving. Hoyk had built up such a name for itself as the town which manufactured the world's best knitwear. And after all that, you'll be wanting something a bit special to eat and drink, I'm sure. So we'll introduce you to artisan chefs, top producers and boutique distillers. You will soon understand why they call this Scotland's breadbasket. Lovely local cheeses, local chocolates, local charcuterie, all products that probably come from within 15 to 20 miles from here. But all that is for upcoming episodes of the Scotland Starts Here podcast. For this first edition, we are immersing ourselves fully in this area's unique and often bloodthirsty past. My name is Mark Nicholl. I am a historian and filmmaker or YouTube filmmaker from the Scottish Borders. I'm a lifetime native of the Scottish Borders, but I really love the history, the scenery, the folklore and the legend associated with this area. And that's why I try to promote through my, my filmmaking. You've brought us to a, a very special location here. Tell us where we've come and why we're here. Yeah, well, this, this place is uh, known as Scots View. And it's one of the most iconic viewpoints in the whole Scottish borders. It's probably the place that you'll see on picture postcards. It was renowned to be Sir Walter Scott's favourite view in the Scottish borders. You can see the Eildon Hills there in the in the distance, well, not in the distance, in the foreground there, the Eildon Hills. And Sir Walter Scott used to stand here. And, and rumour has it, on, on Sir Walter Scott's funeral, the horses were drawing Sir Walter's coffin past this spot. And they were so used to stopping here that they stopped here during the funeral as well. The Eildon Hills there are a real iconic, iconic spot in the Scottish borders. And from there, Sir Walter Scott reckoned you could see at least 58 sites of historical interest. And I've stood there myself, and I think it's probably even more than that, you know, some things that have came to light since then. You know, even standing here, you can see a site over there where there was a battle of Melrose, the Battle of Skirmish Hill. Over there is the ancient Catrail and Torwood Lee Brock. Down in the foreground there is Trimontium, Roman Fort, and, you know, I could stand here all day and tell you all of these fantastical historical sites that are just within grasp there in the front of us at, at Scott's View. What are the places we can see 
with stories that really resonate for you? You know, the, the famous battles or the places that, yeah, yeah. that people shouldn't miss when they visit. Yeah, definitely. We'll, we'll, we'll try Montium's a big one for me, just right in front there. That was the largest Roman camp in, in Scotland, and it was the Romans' real base here in the south of Scotland. Some people tend to think that the Romans stopped at Hadrian's Wall, but they didn't. They came up here to, to Trimontium as well, and, and, you know, there's so many treasures from Trimontium. They're now in the National Museum in Edinburgh, and you can still see them there. But it really is a site of real atmosphere and legend and when you go down there you can really feel the, the history you know brimming out the place at you one thing that i think i'm beginning to realize about this part of scotland is it may be peaceful and quiet now but not very many years ago mm-hmm. five centuries ago if that yeah. this was britain's wild west wasn't it that's right yeah this was probably the most lawless place certainly in in the british isles and probably even in, in europe it was a place where law and order completely and utterly broke down and from the late 13th century right through until the 1700s this really was a war zone intense fighting for 400 500 years toing and froing over this area and actually where we're standing Looking over this viewpoint, we can see the scars of those battles, can't we? And the the pock marks on the landscape. Yeah, yeah. Almost literally in some cases you can see these these scars. You know, just over there was what was known as the Battle of Melrose or you know, sometimes known as Skirmish Hill. You can see these uh, these battle sites are all over all over this area. And border reavers became the mainstay of this community and, and families all became border reavers. These border reavers are completely central to the Scottish borders and, as we'll hear later on, their memory has echoed down into the present day as one of Europe's largest and most breathtaking equestrian festivals full of pageantry and tradition. The families that became reavers, though, did so for one simple reason, to survive. They had no way of maintaining agriculture or farms or a normal way of life because there was so much toing and froing and fighting between the Scottish and English armies. So the men took up what was known as reaving. So they were stealing cattle and thieving to make a living and to survive. And that became a way of life here. So the reavers, I think a common misconception about the border reavers is that it was like an English versus Scottish thing. It wasn't. It was... It was more grassroots than that. Yeah, yeah it was basically families and families stealing to, to live, to to eat and survive, you know. And there were border reavers on this side of the border and the Scottish side, and there were border reavers on the English side of the border as well, you know. And yes, a lot of it was cross-border, but mainly, you know, it was nothing about England v Scotland. It was all about survival of families on both sides of the border in this, in this land. We'll be back with Mark shortly. Next, though, on Scotland Starts Here, I'm off to meet someone with nine centuries of Scottish history resting on her shoulders. Shoes off on the way in? no, no. It's far too cold for that. Ah. <laughs> so we're going up a beautiful old stone spiral staircase now. Oh, and the heating's on in here. That's nice. <laughs> I'm Catherine Maxwell-Stewart. I'm the 21st Lady of Traquair, and uh, we're in the high drawing room at Traquair House. Catherine Maxwell-Stewart, 21st Lady of Traquair, and some say... The rightful Queen of Scotland. I, do, I think that's going slightly too far. <laughs> there are quite a lot of Stuarts. I can tell you where, even though the Stuart King returned to the throne, which I have to say is extremely unlikely, I think we'd still probably be fairly well down the pecking order. <laughs> Actually, despite Catherine's modesty there, she would have been a strong contender to the throne if the Catholic royal succession hadn't been defeated in the Jacobite Rising of 1745. So can we talk a bit about... 
that history and that lineage because it's completely integral, isn't it, to the history of Scotland and, and to this area, to the Scottish borders? Yeah, well, I mean, this house is, is truly remarkable in um, the fact that it has been here for over 900 years. And so it's seen really huge movements and all sorts of conflict um, throughout that period. And um, the family here are interesting as well because they tended to end up on the wrong side in history. So they were very strong Jacobites. They were supporters of the Stuart, um, very loyal to the Stuart monarchy. And they were also very strong Catholics as well. Um, they became Catholic in the 1650s, which was in the middle of the Scottish Reformation, not quite the right time to change your religion. Um, but they very um, firmly upheld their beliefs. And they always stood by the house and their estate and they protected it. And um, by one means or another, they survived. So it is really a testament to survival, I think, more than anything. I mean, I presume all the paintings, the gold-framed paintings on the walls here are your relatives, your ancestors. Yes, no, they are. I'm surrounded by the ancestors. <laughs> <laughs> Looking at you. Originally a royal hunting lodge, Traquare has been visited in total by 27 Scottish kings and queens. The fourth laird was the captain of Mary, Queen of Scots's bodyguard. So she came here in 1566. So this is the time when it really did host lots of royal hunting parties. They were issuing charters from Traquaire. Then the sort of second period, which was, I suppose, more political period in the sort of 16, mid-1600s, the um, seventh laird, who became the uh, chief high treasurer of Scotland. But ultimately, he was um, asked by Charles I to introduce the Book of Common Prayer into Scotland, which was highly unpopular. So he ended up being impeached by the Scottish Parliament, lost basically everything, and ended his days apparently begging in the streets of Edinburgh. It's so fascinating listening to you. You're steeped in these stories and in this history. It's quite unusual to meet somebody as, as close to, to history as you are. Yeah, well, I, I mean, I suppose I um, grew up here. So, um, I mean, I was away for 10 years, but for the majority of my life I have lived here. I was sent to the local school here, um, which, again, you know, was reasonably unusual. So I have this really deep love for the house and for the area, actually. I'm a, a sort of passionate devotee of, of the Scottish borders. I just think it's such a privilege to be here. The next sort of main period, um, which is really fascinating, I suppose, when there was probably most um, activity, was the Jacobite era. So that was in this, obviously in the 1700s. So from the 1690s, they were being imprisoned because they knew that as Catholics, they were very likely to be Jacobites. So there was often a great sort of roundup. Um, they were all thrown into prison for a, a couple of years to keep them out of the way. So that happened at Traquair. I suppose the most important thing that happened here was, of course, the famous story when the um, Earl of Traquair closed the gates to Bonnie Prince Charlie. To find out more about these bare gates, Catherine and I head out on a short outdoors walk to the boundary wall of Traquair. So we've walked up the hill and here we are then, Catherine, at the bare gate and the gates are shut. The gates are shut, yes. This is the official entrance to Traquair, but I'm afraid you can't get in this way. So these famous bare gates of Traquair um, closed since 1745 when Bonnie Prince Charlie visited the house and he was trying to recruit support. He arrived at Traquair and the Earl of Traquair um, gladly gave his support, being a strong uh, Jacobite supporter. 
And then as Charles left Traquere, the Earl made this wonderful gesture by closing the gates and saying they wouldn't be opened until a Stuart King returned to the throne which at the time seemed like it may happen within the next few months. Unfortunately, of course, the Jacobites uh, never achieved their aim, and um, so the gates have remained closed since 1745. Brilliant. <laughs> Absolutely brilliant. And it's very obvious to see why they're called the Bear Gates. Above our heads here, on each column, there are two ferocious-looking stone bears. Yeah, so the, bear, the bears um, have a very strong history with Traquair because we think um, the bears were chosen as the supports for the coat of arms because they were originally hunted here. So this was a hunting lodge and I think the bears harked back to medieval times when it played that role. Um, so here the stone bears um, have their hands on the support and you can see the family motto which is judge naught. Judge, no, judge nothing. Judge, judge no nothing, one. yes. Yeah. Including whether Bonnie Prince Charlie is going to win the war. Well, maybe, yes, exactly. <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> Catherine, thank you so much for taking the time. It's really lovely to speak to you. And, and also to look here at, the, at just the sweep of the landscape, the rolling hills that you can see from just this particular vantage point. Yeah, no, um, it is a, a truly remarkable, a little bit of a, a cross between highlands and lowlands. I think the, the borders is quite unique in its landscape. Traquair House welcomes visitors from spring to autumn, with Catherine herself often acting as tour guide. There's also an annual programme of events. Go to traquair.co.uk for more info. And don't worry, they've put in a new gate to one side of the locked one. You don't have to climb the walls to get in. So this is what's known as Smailham Tower. Very atmospheric place. I'm sure you can see the, the structure there. It's a real foreboding Kind of dark looking structure at times, I suppose. We're back now with historian Mark Nicholl on the next stop of our history tour. But it's the real quintessential Border River Peel Tower. This is the type of building that the Border Reavers lived in or used as protection. And it's not just a, a nice dwelling house. You can see from here, even when we're quite a distance away from it, there's a real absence of any windows on that structure. Just one tiny little one that you can see up the top. Because these things were not built for comfort or to look good. They were built as instruments of, of war, basically. You know, they were, they were for defence. The walls of these things are sometimes about 14 feet thick. I don't know exactly how, how thick Smailham is, but you can you can see that when we get up there, you'll see how thick these structures are. And you can see how it's built on this rocky outcrop. It really was built to repel invaders, to protect the family, but also to, to look out and launch attack. So these are the Reavers' castles, aren't they? Castles in the sense that we know them were the property of lords and dukes and kings. These Reavers Towers are slightly smaller scale and more to do with kind of clans and families. That's right, yeah, yeah. So so every every clan or every family in, on the borderland would have had one of these one of these towers. And these were all over the place. But at the Union of the Crowns, one of the instructions of King James was to destroy all these towers. So most of them have been destroyed now. There's nothing left, maybe a few rocks in the ground. So one like Smalem here is a fantastic example. Let's walk a bit closer. Mm-hmm. So which clan was this? Which clan had Smalem? Smalem was a, a site of the Pringle family. The, the same Pringle that now make clothing? Probably, yeah. yeah. I, I don't know the connection, but there will 100% be some connection between Pringle of uh, Smalem and Pringle who now owns the Jersey company. So we're scrambling up the bank here. Yeah, I think we took the, uh, the scenic route. 
One of the things which also brings Smailham Tower here to prominence is the fact that Sir Walter Scott was, was raised on a farm just over there when he was a boy. So he was born in Edinburgh, Sir Walter, but he was brought down here to, to live with his grandparents at, at Smailham Farm there. And it was this tower here which really inspired Sir Walter to have this interest in border history. And, and it was really Sir Walter who brought the, the border reavers back to life, if you like. All of the stories of the border reavers were, were oral traditions passed down through the generations across the borderlands. Sir Walter was the first man to ever really take those stories and put them into type and, and write them. And actually, Sir Walter Scott is responsible for so much of what we think of as historic Scotland. He kind of invented tartan, didn't he? And, 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 you know, gave Scotland a whole heritage. He gave Scotland this whole new identity, that's right. But particularly down here in the borders, what Sir Walter did was he went around the borders and he collected these stories, these oral traditions about the border reavers, about these fantastic warriors and reavers and fighters from the past. But what Sir Walter did was he took them and he put them into type. He was considered, you know, outlandish and a bit, you know, maverick for doing that, putting them into type. These things were oral traditions which should never have been written down, but Sir Walter did it and he protected these stories and brought them alive for a whole new generation. Yeah, and so many of those stories that Mark's talking about, just a recommendation for you. You can hear them for yourself uh, if you download the Scotland Starts Here app. So if we've given you the the listening bug, you want to hear more, once you've listened to the, the four Scotland Starts Here podcasts, do download the app, start planning your journey, and listen to some of those stories being told by local historians, local storytellers, and local poets. It really is worth your time. You think you might know these stories, you might have read about them, you might have heard them, but it's a very different thing, isn't it, to actually come here and stand here and look at these walls, look at the landscape around us here, and to imagine those marauding clans coming down the valley at us. That's right, yeah, and you know, you you begin to realise what a a tough life it was and what a real, you know, foreboding place this is, a difficult place to survive even without any attacking. And, you know, these are castles that you can really come down and, and literally touch and, and, you know, and feel and, and go inside and walk around them. And, and so it's great to come down here and really immerse yourself in that history. Imagine yourself standing here 400 years ago, you know. So much of the offer to visitors to this part of Scotland is exactly that. Being able to immerse yourself in the past transport yourself back in time. I'm Dave, hello. Dave, sorry, I was just talking to somebody else. That's my okay. Brain, Lulu. That's nice to meet you. You too. And here's somewhere to try if you want to do that, literally. A castle you can rent, still set up with much the same fittings and furniture as when Mary, Queen of Scots, slept here centuries ago. I am Lulu Benson. We're at Needpath Castle, just beside Peebles. There are lots of things here that are original. For instance, there are these ombries, which are little holes in the wall with a sort of arched Gothic frame, door frame. Oh, it's that, like a bread oven, isn't that Well, that no, is? it, was, it was just a cupboard because, uh, because there were a lot of people running around a building like this. It was a fairly public space. And so your precious bits and bobs had to be sort of under lock and key. And so they would have been in these little cupboards with strong doors on them. Uh, and the other thing this castle had, which was a good mod con, was uh, quite a few uh, lavatories uh, known as long drops. I know you said that visitors here could live as they would have lived in this castle centuries ago, but I assume you're not encouraging them to no. use the long drop toilet. Definitely not. Sometimes during weddings that can be a bit of an issue, but um, yeah. But we <laughs> I want to get an invite to these weddings. So. <laughs> And you would have come straight up to the first floor, which was the Great Hall. 
And people can people can stay here almost like an Airbnb. Well, it is an Airbnb. It's on Airbnb, in fact. It's exactly what it is from our point of view. We like the fact the building's used more. It keeps it drier and just is, it's good for a building to be used. Buildings don't like being left. No, absolutely, yeah. Tell me a bit about the history of this place. Who, who, who lived here? Who, yeah, lived here, who stayed here? Yeah. Uh, well, originally it was a Fraser Castle. So in the 1100s, the lands were given. I don't know who, who what poor person had them ripped away from them. But originally, the, after the Norman conquest, the Frasers were granted the lands here, and they built a castle. And the last one to live here, Simon Fraser, is one of Scotland's great heroes. So he was known as Sir Simon the Patriot, and he was a cousin of William Wallace. And he was an important cousin because William Wallace wasn't a particularly important person. And there was a great battle at Roslyn Chapel in about 1305. I'll get my dates wrong. But anyway, where William Wallace was meant to be in charge, commanding the 10,000 strong Scottish army against the 30,000 strong English army. Anyway, the Scottish army at the last minute said, no, we don't want to be commanded by you. We don't know who you are. Who is this man, William Wallace, upstart from who knows where in Scotland? And so at the last minute, Simon Fraser took command and they were all happy to fight for him because they knew who he was. So there's two reasons why that particularly resonates with me. The first is that that's my wife's last name. She's, a, she's a Fraser, Amy Fraser as, ah. as born. Um, and also far more pertinently to uh, the rest of the world mm-hmm. uh, and to um, particularly, I guess, American tourists who were listening to this. It's Jamie Fraser, who's the star of the hit TV show Outlander. Oh, yes. Outlander. I wonder if, if you benefit from tourists coming on the Outlander no, um No, sadly path. not. I wish. Wouldn't that be fun? Yeah, no, I think that they, I know, understandably, want to go and visit the, the buildings that the film was filmed in. And to be fair, you know, Jamie Fraser came from the Lovett Fraser lot, I think, up north, so he would never have um, possibly even known about Needpath. Ah, but if you're an Outlander purist, you should come and see where the name first originates in Scotland. Definitely. No, absolutely come and see that. And, they, you know, it is... It is absolutely how it was more or less apart from the odd bit of panelling here and there in 1320 and as we go further up the castle it feels even more like that oh careful this is uh, mary queen of scots's room so this is the bedroom and this is where people now stay so people can go online and, and you know rent this property yeah. and sleep in this bed in the position, or is this the actual bed that Mary no, Queen of Scots would have slept actual, in? I wish it was, but no, it's not. I don't know, it's got 18th century end bits. And then I think the, the tapestry that they've put in at the top here probably is more like, you know, 19th century. But it's still, it's the same, it's probably the right size because they didn't actually have enormous beds in those days. But it's still, it's very cosy and I'd like to reassure everybody it's got a brand new mattress. Which yeah, that's <laughs> not, that's not uh, centuries old, no. No, definitely not. And actually, standing here, one group of people that will absolutely be fascinated by this castle is architects, because you can see every cut, every nick. Yeah, they love it. Architects absolutely adore coming here, because you can see all the different periods of building and what happened when, which uh, uh, is quite unusual. Well, it's extraordinary. If somebody wants to visit, if somebody's visiting the area and wants to either come and have a look or stay the night here at Neathpath Castle... What do they need to do? How can they find you? What's your website? All those kinds of things. Yes, well, our website is very straightforward. It's www.needpathcastle.com. And that's Needpath, N-E-I-D-P-A-T-H. Brilliant. Yeah, spot on. Yes, it's an awkward Scottish spelling. So from a building in the borders that gives you a chance to dwell in the past to another, this time in Midlothian. It's just as historic, but also has a vital role to play in modern life. My name's Joyce Clark and I'm a business and resource manager here at New Battle Abbey College. 
We're speaking in the library, very impressive grand library here at New Battle Abbey College. I think the first thing we need to do is to just do the potted history. Well, New Battle was founded in 1170 by King David I as a Cistercian monastery. It was to be the daughter house of Melrose Abbey and the Warders. Uh, the Cistercians, of course, were very entrepreneurial. They were first to mine coal here in Scotland. They excelled at cart making, sheep rearing, salt production. And this became a very important economic site. It also became a place of political importance because, of course, in those days, the king held royal councils. There was no parliament as we know it today. And we know for a fact that uh, many of those councils were held here at New Battle and that Robert Bruce was a frequent visitor. So much so uh, that in the spring of 1320, a great council of nobles met here to discuss the question of independence. And this was prior to the Declaration of Arbroath. So in actual fact, the Declaration of Arbroath was drafted here at New Battle Abbey. You've got the Declaration of Arbroath, you've got frequent visits by Robert the Bruce. Downstairs is a very special font as well. Talk to me about the font, the, the christening font that's there. Yes, well, during the 19th century, it was there was a, a christening font uh, discovered just in a field somewhere not that far from here. Uh, it was brought here to New Battle and it's believed to be the christening font of Mary, Queen of Scots. The reason for that is that around that uh, christening font there are the crests of Mary herself, her mother Mary de Guise, her grandmother Margaret Tudor, her father James V, his first wife Madeline and also the abbot Haswell and he was the last abbot of New Battle Abbey but it is believed and widely accepted that it is the christening font of Mary Queen of Scots. I mean so far then so central to Scottish history and so interesting to any visitor to this part of Scotland. But actually, this building is unique as well, isn't it? It's not like other historic buildings or, or monuments or castles that you can visit. How is this place different? Well, indeed, we are a living, breathing building. We are a working building. We are a college. The college was uh, founded in 1937. It was gifted by the 11th Marquess of Lothian to the people of Scotland to be an adult residential college. It was to give people a second chance at education. For those who have missed out first time round, who want to have a new career, who feel lost and left behind, New Battle have given so many people over the past 80 years a second chance at education. We are part of Scotland's history and we are part of Scotland's present. We are creating history as it happens. Uh, actually, we're disturbing somebody working in the library behind us, so we should keep this fairly brief. But uh, the textbooks on the, sh on the shelves here are all reference books. They're all in use. They're all to be borrowed by students. It is a working room, and I think more than anywhere else, the past and the present come very much together here in this library because, yes, we come in here with tours for visitors to see what a beautiful historic room it is, but we have students studying. It's a, a fantastic room. What is the offer to visitors and tourists? If people want to come here and, and do a tour or take a look around, what do they need to do? Anyone who wants to see New Battle really has to to book a tour and we can fit 
tours in during the day, we can do it in the evenings, we can do it at weekends. And we're, we want to welcome all visitors here because it's important that they see New Battle and see what we're doing here. And that story from being a Cistercian monastery in the 12th century to being an adult residential college in the 21st century is a fantastic story. And we want to tell as many people as we can that story. It's a red sandstone depiction of Wallace standing there with his huge shield with a saltire on the front and then he's holding this enormous claymore as well and it really lets you see the scale of the swords that these guys were, were using. So here we are back for our third and final stop off with Borders historian and YouTuber Mark Nicholl. Here, looming up quite unexpectedly out of trees, is a massive statue of one of Scotland's most famous heroes. It's vast, you know, it's a huge statue. Well, we're still a few feet away. Let's walk a bit yeah. closer. There's a few tourists here as well, which is always welcome to see. Yeah. Hi, guys. Are you all all right? Yeah, we're fine, thank you. Good. I've just bringing some friends from Australia. Excellent. Oh, and wow, you're absolutely right. It's enormous. I'm over six foot tall. Mm -hmm. I'm not even as high as the stone on which he is standing. What are we looking at? About a 25-foot statue? Uh, it's over 30. Right. <laughs> Maths was never my strong point. <laughs> yeah, it's about 10 metres or 30. 30 feet high, so it's, you know, it's, it's, it's a huge statue. I think William Wallace is a character that people will think they know from the movies and from stories yeah. they've heard. What can you tell us about the William Wallace that's depicted here? Perhaps the real William Wallace as opposed to the Hollywood version? A lot of people think of Wallace when you think of Wallace and you, maybe you think of Braveheart. Most people think of Braveheart. And he's this kilt-wearing hero from the Scottish Highlands fighting up in Stirling. But really a lot of Wallace's time during the Wars of Independence was spent in the Scottish borders, hiding out in the Ettrick Forest, fighting against English invasion and also making forays into England himself to try and damage the English, the English forces there. But he really did spend a lot of time here. What are some of the sites near here where... William Wallace would have fought in the battles that would have taken place during that time. Yeah, so William Wallace's form of warfare was more like a guerrilla form of warfare, you know, making hits on the English armies and in, in the dead of night in quiet times. So there's not really a massive, what you would call a battle site, but there's lots and lots of sites in the Scottish borders that are associated with William Wallace. The main one, which has been, there's been a lot of press speculation about recently, is what's known as the Kirk of the Forest where Wallace was made the Guardian of Scotland. So that's probably one of the main sites where Wallace was, uh, you know, a famous Wallace site in, in the borders. But there are lots and lots of places all over the land which have Wallace connotations, if you like. And yes, there's a few people wandering around here. You can probably hear the voices of people milling around us taking photos. But this is yet another hidden gem, isn't it, Mark? You can, you can really explore this area and, and find things for yourself as if for the very first time. Oh, 100%, yeah, and this, the Wallace statue here is, is really just the, the beginning of a walk here which leads you down to the River Tweed. At the bottom there, there's a, there's a statue known as the Temple of the Muses, which was constructed by a famous uh, sculptor of this area. It's a beautiful place, it's right on the River Tweed. There's an old suspension bridge there and you can really go and explore. And, and down at the bottom there is a, a big tourist attraction, which is Dryborough Abbey. And if you go in there, there's so much to see from Sir Walter Scott's grave to the ancient 1,000-year-old yew tree to you know the abbey itself you know all in this this little area which you can explore for yourself but you know for me the highlight is this wallace statue which really does contain so much so much history 
Huge thanks to Mark Nicholl for sharing his time, expertise and passion for this area's history. Do check out his website for history tours and to find out how you can book his services for yourself. That's discoverscottishborders.com. Those fearsome border reavers we heard about earlier mostly did their work on horseback. The wife of one famous reaver is said to have once served her husband his spurs on a plate instead of a meal. The message to him was very clear. Saddle up and plunder food from the neighbours or go hungry. Clearly, those days are long gone, but the trials and exploits of the reavers are commemorated every summer in extravagant horse festivals held from May to September in towns and villages up and down the borders. The common ridings, as they're called, have slightly varying traditions from town to town. The principal riders are called cornets in some places and callants in others. In Galashiels, they're the braw lads. I'm Mark Hood. I was Galashiels braw lad in 2016. In acceptance the custody of this standard from you as president of the braw lads gallery. I've been a keen supporter following the common writing since I was knee high. I hereby declare that I shall do what in me lies to carry worthily and return it safely and to uphold the honour and traditions of the borough. So Mark, this episode so far has been all about the history of this area and the hundreds of years of the kind of skirmishes and battles between the different clans and the reavers and that has all come down through history, isn't it, to the present day into this equestrian festival, this enormous, dazzling equestrian festival every summer. Yeah, obviously, the, uh, myself, I was carrying the flag on the, on the main day of the Brawlads Gathering Day, where we, we go round the boundaries of our town, paying respects and doing reenactments for the fallen that have gone before us. At 12 o'clock, if we're on time, 12 o'clock, the Brawlad dips the flag for an act of homage in front of the war memorial on the horse which is some spectacle to see, you know, the broad sitting on a horse and dipping it right down. To commemorate the valour of the men of Galashiels. Also here is Gowan Miller. Gowan, you are a coordinator for kind of equestrian tourism in the borders here, in the yeah. Scottish borders. It is, if not the biggest, then certainly one of the biggest and the, the greatest and the oldest equestrian spectacles <laughs> in the world, isn't it? Absolutely. Um, it starts, in a lot of towns, starts at ridiculously early in the morning, sort of six o'clock with the bands coming through, waking everybody up. We're usually up for about one in the morning trying to get all the horses ready. <laughs> <laughs> Are you able to describe what it feels like to be the Braw Lad? It's quite hard to understand if you're not steeped in the history and in the traditions of the area. As they say in the borders, it's better felt than tell. Better felt than told. Yeah. Better felt than, than told. Yes, right? exactly. You have to witness it and feel it. You can only imagine what it's like to be the principal up on the horse. Because on the ground it's, it's quite phenomenal. And to see two to three hundred horses cantering up the main street of the towns, it's, yeah, truly... Sons of hairs in the back of your neck going. <laughs> and for visitors coming to this area who want to witness that, be a part of that spectacle, what should they be doing? So there's a website called Return to the Ridings. Um, the, the common rides are roughly about the same time every year, but there are some variations. But you can go in there and check the dates. Ask locally, whatever you're saying, they usually know what's what's going on. And yeah, you can just turn up. You can. There's no restrictions. It's not ticketed. You can just come and wander around. If you want to get up early to hear the bands, it's highly recommended. It, it makes for a long day, but a fun day. 
the real spectacles in the town, I guess, when they come back in. So if you if you did get up early, you can go off and have some breakfast and a quick sleep, and then uh, yeah, wait for them to come back in. So three hundred horses, pageantry, colour, you flags. know, the flags. Yeah. Do you feel the weight of that history while you're sitting in that saddle? Does it feel quite momentous? When um, two kind of occasions, when you're cantering up Scott Street and you've got the enclosing of the buildings and people, the roar of the crowd, and you know, I would say there'd be roughly about three to four thousand people standing on the street there. It's just an amazing shiver right up your spine that you get in. When you get to the end, unfortunately, feel this emotion that it's you know you're nearly done and you want to start all again. You know, Mark, thank you very much. Thank you so much for listening to this, the first in our series of Scotland Starts Here podcasts. Hey, how you doing? How was your day today? Because I know you've had a bad week. Thank you to Mark Nicholl, Catherine Maxwell-Stewart, Lulu Benson, Joyce Clark, Mark Hood and Gowan Miller. Thanks also to photographer and videographer Rob Gray, who let us use his recordings of the Gala Shield Brawl Lads Gathering. To be fair, we've only scratched the surface of everything the Scottish Borders and Midlothian has to offer history lovers. For much more on, say, world-famous Roslyn Chapel, Sir Walter Scott's home at Abbotsford or Melrose Abbey, or any number of other historic sites and monuments, head to our website. That's www.scotlandstartshere.com. You should also follow Scotland Starts Here on social media and download that Scotland Starts Here app to your phone. It's a brilliant resource. It's just packed with stories, songs and suggestions for trips out you can make and places to explore. The Scotland Starts Here podcast celebrate all that's great about the Scottish borders and Midlothian, right down to the music we use. So, big thanks also to talented young Borders singer-songwriter Evie Archenhold, whose song we're listening to right now. This track is called A Thousand Miles Away. Evie's part of a talented collective of young musicians from this area that release music with the help of Sound Cycle, the Borders Youth Music Forum. They've got three brilliant albums called Weave, Warp and Weft. This track is on the album Weave. Check them out at soundcycle.bandcamp.com. And if you've enjoyed listening, please, please rate, review and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and share this with anyone else you know who you think should discover the Scottish borders and Midlothian. Next time, we are getting wet and muddy. We're finding out what this area has to offer outdoors lovers and adventure seekers. Hope to see you then. Hey.